0: Because of my role in both the school and in the church, and because our church is getting very big, many of you know me, but I don't know all of you. So how do I know if a person I meet at the mall or at a restaurant uh, is from the school or the church, uh, and I'm supposed to come and acknowledge you? Uh, Let me let you in on my secret, my rule of thumb— is if you look at me and smile for at least three to four seconds, then I can safely assume that you probably know me with a very high likelihood that our knowing each other, our acquaintance, is either through the school or through the church. And therefore, I will return your smile with a head nod uh, and a smile myself, or I may go over and, and shake your hands. And for these past nine years, it's worked wonderfully until a few weeks ago. Uh, at a wedding reception at at the Shangri-La Hotel. Uh, It was uh, the wedding of two two of our Grace alumni who are also members of our church and I officiated that marriage. And uh, I went to the reception with the great assumption, the natural assumption that I would meet many people who would know me, but I may not know them all. So sure enough, as my wife and I exited our car and entered into the lobby, There was a father and son who smiled at me for about four seconds, and so I went over there, and sure enough, they knew me, and I knew them. And then there was another couple who smiled at me and uh, seemed to look in my direction about three or four seconds, and so I shook their hands, and uh, they knew me, uh, and I uh, was able to get to know them as well. And so uh, this happened with a few couples who were at the lobby. Uh, This happens a lot uh, at social functions, which my wife calls my senatorial run. Um, And then I saw another couple um, standing off to the side Uh, And they seemed to be smiling at me uh, for a few seconds And so I didn't want them to feel left out And and perhaps thinking that somehow the the pastor or the chaplain Had ignored them and shaken everyone else's hand but theirs Uh, And so I went over there and extended my hand to shake theirs Uh, When I did that, they looked a bit shocked uh, But they did shake my hands Uh, And I began the small talk that is very natural in trying to figure out how they know me and how I know them. Uh, Great to see you, I said. Uh, Wonderful wedding, wasn't it? Uh, I'm sure the reception will be wonderful, Uh, along with, again, small talk to try to gauge how I am to know them or they know me. But I got nothing from them. Their answers seemed very odd, not the natural answers. It was then that my very perceptive and sensitive wife leans over and whispers into my ear, They don't know you. (laughs) I felt very embarrassed, uh, in fact quite humiliated, uh, and uh, quickly said my goodbyes to people I had no idea who they were and they don't know me, uh, and went to the reception. During the ride back home after the reception, Cindy told me, be careful the next time. Don't assume that everyone knows you and that you know everyone. I was humbled and I changed my rule. So now I wait for 10 seconds for them to look at me and smile before I walk over and introduce myself. But we had a great laugh about it and I can laugh about it now. But I know that you have undergone times of great embarrassment, and you just feel like you've lost everything, and you, you can't step out again into the real world. Uh, how do you find joy in times of humility, and how do you find joy in times of humiliation? That's what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our study in the book of Philippians in our series entitled, Life in Color, Living Joyfully in All Circumstances. One of the defining marks of the Christian life is, of course, joy. How do we cultivate that when we have to cultivate, in our attitudes and in our heart, humility? They don't seem to go hand in glove. They don't seem to go together. I feel sad when I have to be humble. I feel sad when I have or am humiliated. Let's take a look this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 2, as we study verses 1 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 is what we're going to take a look at this morning. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul writes to the Philippian church, If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Paul begins this section to the Philippian church by calling for unity in the church. He says that the church can show forth spiritual unity because of four things which are found in verse 1. Four foundational truths. Uh, in Greek, they are condition clauses. Because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, number one, Because of your being comforted by His love, because of your experience of His love, because of your fellowship, number three, by His Spirit, and how the Spirit builds up the church, because of our call to be tender and compassionate, because of these foundational truths, we are to be unified. And then Paul continues in verse 2. Because of these four foundational truths in verse 1, we can practically live out unity, In Christ, four different ways. First of all, verse 2, by being like-minded. Number two, by having the same sort of unconditional love that Christ has exemplified. By being one in spirit. And then, by having a common purpose. Paul says, if you allow these four practical expressions of unity to be exemplified in your church... Paul says, my joy will be complete. Paul, being their spiritual father, would just be so happy, so filled with joy, because Paul simply wanted them to get along with each other for the sake of Christ and for the glory of God. Why does Paul often talk about the unity of the church? The reality is unity in a church is hard to have. Why? Because church is made up of different people. And it's made up of different types of people. And it's made up, made up of types of people you don't like. And I don't want you to do this now. But if you can just simply glance to your left and to your right without being noticeable, you will see people who you wish are not a part of this church you will see people you simply don't like. They annoy you. Their very presence makes you angry even though they don't open a word. These are people that you just don't get along with. You don't click with. And yet they're here. And you pray to God, Lord, take them away somewhere else. Of the thousands of churches in Manila, why this one Perhaps some of you here are this morning in this service simply to avoid someone else in another service. And yet the Bible says we are supposed to love one another. We are supposed to be united. That's why Paul says one of the keys to finding unity in the church is to cultivate in our lives the quality of humility. To show humility to one another... Not only developing it, but finding joy in humility. You see, when we begin to show forth humility, it goes a long way into generating unity. It's because when you begin to consider others better than yourself, you learn to love them. You learn to accept them. Look what Paul writes in verse 3 to verse 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The issue in the Philippian church was there were many who were self-centered. These are the types of people where it's always about me. Me, 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 me. My ministry My kingdom, my circle of friends, it's all about me. And Paul implores them, don't do things on the basis of pride, on the basis of selfish ambition. Look out for the interests of others. See how it affects other people. Look beyond yourself. Now, what does that look like practically? Look at the last part of verse 3. Paul simply writes, believe that others are better than you. Some of you may walk away this morning thinking, I'm going to be more humble. But unless you change your perspective to see that others are better than you, you will never cultivate the attitude of humility. That's difficult to do, I know. It's difficult for me. Because I think I'm always better than everyone else And I know you do as well That I'm always right And you're never right The Bible says regardless of whether you are or are not Or whether you think you are or are not better than the other person You are to cultivate an attitude of humility By thinking that others are better than you God desires that for each and every one of us as it was a problem in Paul's day, so it is a problem today in our egocentric world where the focus is on self. That's why we've coined the term recently these past two years, the term selfie. It's when people take pictures of themselves because we believe that the world wants to see pictures of me. And if I can't find other people to take pictures of me, I'll take it with myself. Because you know what? They want to see where I'm eating. They want to see where I vacation. They want to see me in my bedroom. They want to see me in the bathroom. It's about me. My rights. My comfort. My advantage. Paul says, well, hang on there. It's not about you, it's about others. Paul's admonition is hard to accept. But he says, consider that other people are not only equal to you, but they are better than you. Not only in certain areas, but in every single way, and that's tough. But Paul says it's not a suggestion, it's a command. In lowliness of mind, let each of us esteem others better than himself. William Barclay tells the story of a Spartan who lived in Sparta in ancient Greece. His name was Pederatos. Pederatos was a candidate for 300 positions that were to be chosen to govern Sparta. But in the final cut, his name was not on the list of 300. Some of his friends sought to console him, but his reply has made it down through history. Pederatos says, I am glad that in Sparta there are 300 men better than I. Pederatos became a legend because of his willingness to stand aside while others take the places of glory and honor. Do you find joy, my friends, when others get the honor and the glory? Do you clap with the same enthusiasm for others if they receive an award, if you are receiving the award? Or do you fake clap it and say, I bet you they cheated. I bet you they paid someone else off. Do you live with the notion that we are entitled to everything because that sort of thinking has permeated its way into the church where that instead of me serving the church, the church serves me. I'm entitled to everything. The church revolves around me. The people of the church are here to serve me. The reason I mention this, my friends, is that the danger of a growing big church is that people will want to have it their own way. We will begin to feel that the church owes us something because of who we are or what we've done or the fact that we have history here in this church or we've been here longer than other people. Oh, church rules, they're great, but they're for other people. They're, they're not for me. We don't have to follow them. They don't apply to me because I'm above that. And in the culture in which we live, we expect that if we know the person or we, or we know someone on top, then we are given special favor. That's the culture. And we brought it into the church. And somehow the rules apply to everyone else. But no, for me, I'm extended special favor because of the virtue of the fact that any church should be happy to have me in their congregation. My friends, I say this with all tenderness and love and in all humility and grace. You're simply not that important. We love you. We welcome you. But the church is not a palace for perfect people. It is a place where imperfect people, saved by grace are continually being transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. It is a place for imperfect people. And if you're one of the perfect people who don't find the need to come or need to learn or need to humble enough themselves to admit their imperfections, then, my friends, you will get nothing out of coming. It takes great humility to say that I am wrong. And I need to change and that the concerns of others are more important than my own rights and privileges. And that's a tough thing to practically live out. But that's what the Bible says in verse 4. Let each of us look out not only for my own interest, but also for the interests of others. I love taking groups to the Holy Land. And if you were to go to the land of Israel, I would take you to Bethlehem. And there in Bethlehem is a... a, a a famous church called the Church of the Nativity. Uh, it's a famous church because whether you know it or not, you see it every Christmas. Uh, if you turn on the TV Christmas Eve, uh, usually there's a live feed to the Church of the Nativity where hundreds of thousands of people gather from around the world to celebrate Christmas at the traditional place where Jesus was born. But if you actually go there in one of the most beautiful for me and one of the most unique and one of the largest churches in the Middle East, you will find something very strange about this church. In this large church, you will find that it has one of the smallest doors in the world. To enter this massive church, you must enter a door that only allows one person in at a time. And this church door is no higher than four feet tall. I've never actually measured it. But let's just say I've hit my head on that thing many a times. Everyone must bow their heads before they can enter into the church of the nativity. Now, there are several stories as to why the church was made so much smaller. But whatever the reason, this door is called the door of humility. You know why? Because it forces everyone who wishes to come to see the traditional place of the birth of Jesus Christ, who was born in a lowly manger of humble origins, they must bow their heads in reverence whether they want to or not. It's a beautiful symbol. I've often left that place wanting to change all the doors of our church to a door of humility, a door so low, so small, that everyone who comes must bow their heads in reverence. Because I say this in all love, There are some people who come into a church with their heads way too big for their ego. They just don't think they need to be here. I speak this to myself as well as I stand on the pulpit. There are times I must check my ego at the door and literally come before the Lord and ask for forgiveness because I do not enter into this place entering a door of humility. Do you come to church with humility in your heart? The Bible says, considering others more important than you. I have to mention this because, again, as our church continues to grow and grow rapidly, there may be many who come and wonder why our church has this and that rule. We have rules for weddings, if you want to get married here. We have rules if you want to join our choir. We have rules and expectations if you want to have your child dedicated here. We have expectations of you if you desire to get baptized and become a member of this church. Some people say, Why do you make life so hard for us? Can I just tell you, we don't make up these things to make your lives miserable. We pray deeply about it, knowing that some may not understand. But we implement them so that there is order in God's church. Because if you make exceptions for one, you make exceptions for everyone. And how is God honored in this? But the humility of our hearts should lead us to say, you know what? It's not a big deal. I want to humbly submit in obedience because the needs of others, the needs of the church as a whole, are more important than my own entitlements. You you may be angry with with what I just said because it's so hard to accept. My friends, you are not the exception. Neither am I. So hard was it for perhaps the Philippian Christians in our own generation to accept this truth that Paul has to give two examples of humility to kind of calm us down. And he uses the great example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that no one is without excuse. The first example is in his incarnation. The second example is is in his obedience unto death. Look at verses 5 to verse 7 with me of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Paul says very clearly in verse 5: Let the attitude that pervades your life, let the attitude that you have be the same as that of Jesus Christ's selfless humility. Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead. He is God himself. And in one of the greatest acts of humility, he embraced perfect humanity. But even in his full deity, Jesus did not consider equality with God, the Father, something to be held onto, something to be grasped. It was not something he strove for. And in this classic passage on what we call the kenosis Of Jesus Christ, the self-emptying, the self-denial. He denied his rights as God, although never stopped being God. And he chose to be one of us in his incarnation when Jesus Christ took on bodily form. My friends, don't you ever forget that Jesus Christ has the rights and the power of God because he is God. But he chooses not to exercise it in a great act of humility. Let me explain this to you perhaps in a practical example. I'm not saying that the president of our country is anywhere close to being like Jesus Christ, but I know many of, you, many of you have read in the news this week that the president renewed his driver's license at the local LTO this week. And the reason it made news was the fact that he did not ask for so-called VIP treatment. And he simply went through the normal processes. And he was able to get his driver's license in 30 minutes. Now he may have stood in line. But I can surely tell you. That everyone in that office was working as fast as they had ever worked before. Because I just got my driver's license renewed four weeks ago. Before my birthday. And it did not take 30 minutes. I'll leave it at that. Now, in the commentaries that came out of it, there were some who were quite critical of the president. They said this was a publicity stunt. Some said, what a waste of time for our chief executive. He could have gotten any of his messengers or one of his LTO chiefs to renew his license for him. But regardless of the validity of the criticism, the act endeared him to many who, didn't, who, who saw that he didn't throw around his position and the entitlement which he had. Regardless of what you think of him and this act, it was still an act of humility. Although most of you, probably none of you will ever become president of this country, if put in that same position, I wonder how many of you would stand in line with everyone else to renew their driver's license and wait patiently. Some of you are thinking in your hearts, well, if I ever become president, sure, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's pretty easy, but I'm not president. So, oh, well, Well, let's put it into your level. How many of you have ever felt the anger rise up in you when someone cuts you in line? When you have been standing in line and someone steps in front of you, do you have a smile on your face? No, that anger begins to build up. And you can see as they're trying to cut in, And I've seen the most quiet of people, people who don't say more than two words, somehow find the courage to tell those who are trying to cut in line, the line is over there, please. And somehow when you say it, it feels so good, like you're teaching them. Don't you dare cut in front of my line. You know that feeling. Because my rights have been stepped on. I've been waiting here patiently, and and you try to sneak in. The Bible says, consider them more important than you. How many of you would be filled with joy to allow people to come in front of you? Probably none of us. Maybe if you're in a wheelchair, I'll let you in because I feel sorry for you. But I've been waiting here for three or four hours, and I'm not going to happily allow 10 or 20 people come in front of me because they're better than me. I'm not saying the application you need to take away is you let people in front of you in the line. The application is the attitude in which you are to have when they do that. Put into a similar situation, do you have in your heart an attitude of humility that says others are better than me? Because Jesus Christ, in verse 6, he has said, he made himself of no reputation and he took the form of a servant to be incarnate, to be one of us, to become human. That Christ visibly and voluntarily surrendered his rights as God, although he never stopped becoming God, and gave up all the splendor and glory of heaven and the great humiliation that is the incarnation I want you to think about that the second person of the godhead the triune godhead who live in eternity past who for eternity has known the praise and glory of billions of angels Who every day it is said of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Who with one word created all the universe. Who with one thought can command the legions of angels to do his bidding. To be put into the shackles of a human body. And to be so utterly dependent as a baby. That the God of the universe, the creator God, has to be carried from one place to another because he cannot walk. Who has to cry out for the milk of his mother? Can you imagine the frustration and the humiliation it must have been for him? For someone who was so creative that he created the world to then work 30 years as a carpenter of Nazareth. That is an example of humility. Knowing that, I ask you, what are you willing and not willing to do for Christ? What are you willing to do and not do? Do you have limitations of what you are to do if God calls you to do it? Are you humble enough to admit you're wrong? Are you humble enough to change as convicted by God. You need to check your heart's attitude, as I do mine as well. I'm glad early on in my ministry, God took me out of a very large church to allow me to work in a very small church plant. From a church of 600 to a church of 40 is very difficult to make that transition. Why? Because although there's great intimacy in a small church, you have to do everything. And we were so small, we could not afford a custodial crew or janitors. And so everyone in the small church had to take turns vacuuming the classrooms, cleaning up the kitchen, cleaning the bathroom. I'd like to say in the three years that I was a part of this church, I never cleaned the bathroom once. Not because I wanted to, I really didn't want to, but because whenever I went to go sign up for my turn to clean the bathroom... The slots were always already full. It was full. Who signed up? Who were these people? You think, oh, maybe they're, they're normal people. Po Tong lang. Pancha'lang. People who 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 are simply the salt of the earth. They're used to doing that. I wish you could meet some of them. These were professors at the university. PhDs from Harvard and Berkeley in Georgia Tech, and University of Chicago. There was a CEO whose company employed thousands of people and of who I told you the brand, you would know it. There were division heads of multinational companies whose bathroom in their house was bigger than my own house and they rushed at the opportunity to clean bathrooms on Sunday afternoon. And I watched them, and I saw such joy in their life. It put me to shame. That experience left in me a deep, deep awareness. And it's changed me. Not that I'm the humblest of people, but I know some of you have called the church before and are surprised to hear me pick up the phone. It's not a big deal. Because if the phone rings and no one's there to answer it, why can't I pick it up? And sometimes if the bulletin is printed late, last-minute announcements or whatnot, sometimes you'll see me folding bulletins. I wish some of you would come and offer help. But it's okay. It's not a big deal. I may be the senior pastor of this church, but it's not above me. Do I want to do it? Of course not. But I'm willing to do it for the sake of Christ because I have learned from people who are spiritual giants in the humility in which they served Christ. I'm glad that God has given us many in this church who are so humble that they will do anything regardless of their status. But I also know that there are many in this church who would not ever lift a finger if the task given to them was too high for them. How do you think God will look upon you? Do you think God will bless Do you think God is pleased with that? I'm reminded of the story of Booker T. Washington, that renowned black educator living in the deep south of the U.S. Dr. Washington had been made president of the famed Tuskegee University in Alabama. But if you know the deep south, racism still runs rampant and racial profiling is a part of everyday life. He was walking in an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by a wealthy white woman who, because of his skin color, she assumed him to be someone he was not. Not knowing the famous Dr. Washington by sight, she approached him and said, Sir, would you like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for me? Because Dr. Washington had no pressing business at the moment, he smiled, he rolled up his sleeves, and he proceeded to do the humble chore she had requested. When he had finished chopping wood, he even carried the logs into her house and stacked them neatly by the fireplace. When he left, a little girl, his da- her daughter, recognized him and said to her mother, "'Mom, don't you know who that is? "'That's Dr. Washington, "'the president of Tuskegee University.'" He lives in our neighborhood. The woman was overcome with embarrassment. And so the next morning, hurriedly, she went to see Dr. Washington in the president's office at the school. And she apologized profusely in his response to her. It's perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides... It's always a delight to do something for a friend. So moved by the genuineness of his humility and his gracious and meek attitude, he endeared himself to her. Not long afterwards, she had rallied all of the wealthy people that she knew and she donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to Tuskegee University in honor of Dr. Washington. God honors the humble. He takes down the prideful and he lifts up the meek. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. The second example found in verse 8. Look with me. And being found in appearance as a man, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, Christ died for us. He died for mankind. And it was an act of humility. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, I don't know about you, But when you get blamed for something you didn't do, you get angry. I didn't do it. You're blaming me. But the one who died for us did not deserve death. He was the farthest person away from the sin of our lives. He was not responsible, and yet he was made responsible for each one of our ugly sins. And he took it upon himself. He was obedient to the point of death. We forget that. We think, oh, Jesus Christ died for us. Well, he had to because he's the son of God and he loves us so much. I want you to read verse 8. Notice the first phrase. He humbled himself. In the humanity of who he is. He says, I will humble myself to obey the Father's will to die for people who did it all. We who are not willing to allow people to cut in front of us in line. And in righteous anger, kick them out. How in the world can we fathom the depths of someone to die for us when he did nothing wrong? But the Bible says he humbled himself. Great act of humiliation. Obeyed the Father's will and led to his death. If I were to die for the sins of mankind... I would have chosen a painless one, a quick one. And Christ could have died a a painless death and still saved the world. The Bible says in verse 8, the death was by crucifixion. Even the death of the cross, a death so painful and cruel, it was reserved only for the worst of criminals. A death so painful... That the Bible tells us in the garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus Christ knew he would die, he shuddered at the thought. In the humanity of who he was, he shuddered. I'm going to die for the sins of mankind, and this is the type of death I must have? My friends, do you see the magnitude of that humiliation? Humiliation? It's not for us simply to have a head knowledge about it. It is for us to emulate it. Can you not humble yourself and myself a little bit even in view of what Christ has done? Because if you don't or cannot do that, then you will never understand full well the magnitude of what our Savior did. If you cannot humble yourself to forgiveness, if you cannot humble yourself to change, then we will never understand the depth of the magnitude of the cross of Christ. As you know, last week we did not have communion. Some of you asked me why we did not have communion last week. Was it because of time? Of course not. There's always time for communion. First of all, a teaching moment. We don't always have to have communion the first week of every month. If you came to church only for communion, I'm sorry. Some churches I know only have communion once a year. Some have it once a quarter, four times a year. Some have it only in their evening services. Some churches have communion every week. We, as a matter of practice, have it once a month usually on the first weekend of the month. The Bible does not prescribe the frequency of communion nor the time, so we don't always have to have it the first time, first week of every month, and we may not do so following. But I want you to know the real reason why I, as this senior pastor, made an executive decision not to have communion last week. A few days before, I was reading a book and deeply touched and moved and convicted by what it said. I was rereading Thomas Akempi's book, The Imitation of Christ. And in this book, he writes, Jesus has many who love his kingdom in heaven, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire comfort, but few who desire suffering. He finds many to share his feast, but few his fasting. All desire to rejoice with him, but few are willing to suffer for his sake. And here's the line that convicted me. Many follow Jesus to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the cup of his passion. Many admire his miracles. But few follow him in the humiliation of the cross. I felt we had come to a point in our church where there were too many prideful people taking communion. And that includes me. There were too many people who put limitations on what they would or would not do for God. For many, it simply was going through the motions For many, it was simply a ritual with no significance. It was a sense of obligation without respect. How? When we are told we do it in remembrance of me, the act of Christ on the cross, can prideful people even put that bread into their mouth and the cup into their lips and accept it and they cannot humble themselves. And so I did not want simply five minutes before communion for you to examine your life. I felt it was appropriate to give you a month and myself a month to really think through the humility of Christ and the humiliation of what He went through on the cross so that the next time we take communion in remembrance of Him, we will do so with an attitude of humility. Are there things in the church you are unwilling to do? Are you unwilling to take a stand for him? To be bold in your spheres of influence? You know what annoys me, and I'll tell you what annoys me, is when people come late, and they only come, the last part, just to take communion, what's the point, I think? Only to go through the motions. Are you willing to clean the toilets for him? Are you willing to stand and proclaim his name? Because if you're not willing to do those things, why should you take communion? Communion without meaning is a dead ritual and simply but a waste of your time and my time. The act of the cross, He is death for us. The greatest humiliation for the Son of God, God Himself, and we cannot lower our heads from the pride of our hearts. Say, Lord, I've been wrong. I need to change. I need to live for You. As a pastor, I want us, including myself, to learn the lesson of humility. So, again, when we take it in a few weeks, It is with a humble heart that we participate and we say, Lord, change me. Our church does not have a door of humiliation, but we have communion that reminds us of the humiliation of Christ for our sake. And so we are to humble ourselves before we can even approach him. I love verses 9 and verse 11. What is the result of all this? Man despised and rejected. Christ was resurrected. He, was, he ascended. He was glorified. And He said, at the seat of honor, the right hand of God the Father. The name of Jesus is indeed glorified and honored. It is a name of dignity. And one day the Bible says, every knee will bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who He is. Every one of us whether you want to or not, you will bow before Jesus with your knees. That should humble even the proudest of people. Why don't we practice that now in how we live out our lives? No one will be exempt. I don't care your position. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care about your fame. The Bible says, for the rest of eternity, at the name of Jesus Christ, you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and it will glorify God the Father, and every knee will bow. I don't know. I, I love that because it tells me one day God humbles the proud. I don't know why I get satisfaction in that, but I do. To know that no one is exempt. No one will be exempted based on their address. No one will be exempted based on their royalty or not. No one will be exempt based on the fact that they have good children or bad children. It doesn't matter. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. That's pretty much everyone. Will bow before the king. And they will acknowledge him for who he is. The scriptures ring true. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Because God is most glorified in our humility. If only we are willing to step back and let him shine. Many of us simply need to get out of the way. We are obstructing the glory of God in our lives. We are so egotistical, self-centered, proud that we're covering the glory of God. Step aside. God is most glorified when we are humble. And shouldn't that bring us joy? You say, Pastor, you've talked a lot about humility, but but joy, where's the joy? It's as hard to do. Let me tell you. Joy comes from freedom, the freedom that we have when we are humble. Thomas Merton says it well. "In humility is the greatest freedom. As long as you have to defend the imaginary self that you think is important, you will lose your peace of heart. As soon as you compare the shadow with the shadows of other people, you lose all joy. Because you have begun to trade in unrealities and there is no joy in things that do not exist. Basically, what Merton is saying is this. In humility, we have the freedom that we don't have to prove ourselves to another. We are simply a humble servant of the mighty king. The joy of humility is the freedom of knowing, I don't have to prove myself to you. You don't have to like me. I don't have to like you. I don't have to prove myself to my father or my mother. I don't have to prove myself to my in-laws. I don't have to prove myself to my grandparents. Because Christ already accepts me. So who am I? I am but a humble servant of the mighty king. Unless you humble yourself, you will always live in the shadows of other people. And you will never find freedom in that. The joy in humility is being free from all that. It doesn't matter who you are. Your fame, your fortune. You are the servant of a mighty king. So you will know humility when others ask you, who are you? with a great smile on your face and a joy that radiates from your heart, you say with all confidence, I am but a humble servant of the great King. Oh, the joy in the reality of that truth. May each one of us learn it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. They are hard to accept. Hard to learn. We all need a dose of humble pie, including myself, because we think ourselves better than others. But as the scriptures admonish us, help us to cultivate humility and find joy in it, knowing that we don't have to one up each other, we don't have to prove ourselves to one another. As long as you approve of us That's all that matters And when we find ourselves Finding it very difficult To humble ourselves Help each of us To focus on the cross The incarnation How Jesus Christ The son of God God himself Took on bodily form To die for each one of us That cruel cruel way Of dying death But you exalted him Praise God for that. So, Lord, may this church be a church that glories in humiliation, that it will permeate throughout each sector of this church, young and old, the quality of humility, seeing each one and others better than ourselves, never setting a limitation for what you call us to do. May we be a church, a body of Christ in which you are well pleased until the day we see you again. Give us the joy that comes from humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.